0: April 4th, 2023, we're in legendary Studio One, Sunset Sound, with Mr. Patrick Carney, who's the drummer of a little band called The Black Keys. How are we honestly doing this morning? I'm good,
1: man. I'm really good. We're, we're here to work. We're recording today in Studio Three.
0: Yeah, and that means so much to us that you guys come contribute to
1: the longevity of this place. Is it pretty important
0: for The Keys to come in a, a real recording studio?
1: Yeah, you know, it's weird because we, we the band started really because we were interested in recording, you know, and um, of making, making our own songs, you know. It was, like, I've never really even learned, aside from the covers that we've played in the Black Keys, I've never sat around with guitar and, like, learned how to play a song. It just has not really been that interesting to me. I'll learn some riffs, but, like, it's always about making a new song. So I got, like, a four-track when I was a kid, my dad got me a little um, Porta Studio One Tascam oh, thing sick. when I was in seventh or eighth grade, seventh grade, I think. And uh, ever since then, I've just like, my thing is I've like, been trying to start try to start a band and record things. And so Dan and I grew up very close to each other. And we've known each other for a long time. But when we were in our early 20s, essentially, we decided like we accidentally kind of started this band by recording so we you know when we came time to make our first record we did it ourselves in in my basement at the place i lived and then um after that we kind of we ventured into st- the studio world for the first time we never had money to afford a real studio this guy really nice guy who ended up producing the kill killers first record jeff saltzman yeah he flew us from From akron to berkeley to record at his studio he had a he had a you know a neve and this room and it's very nice of him he flew us out and we recorded there for a couple days and we flew back and we played the stuff to like our girlfriends and they're like it sounds too good like you guys are screwing up was like the crunch away and like the... I don't know. I mean, I mean it wasn't that bad. It was good. I, we just were so insecure, I think, that we just didn't know sure. how to communicate about music. We didn't know. We were unsure, you know, and we also were just, I was just learning my instrument. We were just learning how to write songs.
0: What kind of set did you have right back then?
1: What What's that? What kind of drum set were you playing on? Oh, anything. <laughs> <laughs> we had no money. We okay. were really, you know, we were very broke. Uh, by the, around that time, I bought like this cheap little Mapex with like an 18 inch kick drum, so I could fly it around. Sick. But we have but basically, what I'm trying to say is we had like not great experiences in the studio mainly because we didn't know like how to utilize it, yeah, how to use stuff. And so we went and like went back, and for the second record, I bought a Tascam 388 quarter inch eight track basically like my four track just with quarter inch tape and bigger like like my four track uh we made our, our record thick freakness on that thing and then the next record we, we went and i bought like um off of fat possum i bought a one inch 16 track task cam 85 b with like the switchable dolby on each channel and i bought the matching mixing desk that came from red bear alberta red deer alberta it was a in the hands of Loverboy's former like, sound tech. <laughs> so we recorded our third record on that. And then I mixed that on Pro Tools in my apartment with Dan. Wow. And then the next record we started it and my tape machine broke like day one. So we just um that's when I learned like that there were fancy preamps cuz prior to that I was just getting sounds off of like hidden tape hard with bad preamps. And now i have pro tools and everything sounds kind of bad so i just was like i bought some api preamps and we recorded our 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 first major label record on pro tools in my basement wow magic potion you engineering yeah and i together yeah yeah. um and producing but uh yeah then it's like basically after that like we kind of matured to the point we were at this point like this was 2007 We've been doing the band for five years It took us that long to get to the point of of knowing like that we needed help mm-hmm. you know i think there's that thing what's it called the um i always forget the thing it's the uh it's basically like it's the it's, it's the paradox that like the less you know about something the more you think you know about it you know it's kind of, and it's like i think it exists Right, so that you don't lose interest with something that has a steep learning curve. You know, like for for golf, I play golf. I got into golf recently. It's very important. Mm -hmm. If you if you realize how hard golf is, oh my gosh, then uh, you don't you're not going to want to like really play it. But like if you somehow start thinking that you're better than you are, you're more likely to come back. You know, I mean, music's the same way. It's like if if like a twelve year old playing guitar realized how terrible they sounded, they would never pick the thing up again. But they, they, you have these moments where you think that you've got it figured out. That keeps you coming back to the point where you, you will, I think, realize how much more you have to go and then you start learning. But I think that took us that long to realize there's a lot that we could be doing better.
0: Yeah, that's so true too because like even um, cinematography or something, if you looked at it as so in-depth and so difficult and everything to get to a, a an amazing DP level, you'd probably be turned off, but you got to just
1: ride the wave of the love of doing something at the initial stages. You have to, you have to, you have to be there all the time. You know, when you get to the burnout thing. Yeah. I think it's bad, but yeah, you know, so for us, like it took us that long to be like a little, at least open-minded to it because the way that we ended up moving into like working in a real studio, it wasn't, it wasn't by our own design um we got approached by the producer danger mouse who i'll just call brian from now on yeah um used to be our tenant here
0: after you guys turn us on
1: brian um approached us about making he wanted us to help write and be the like backing band um for an ike turner comeback record wow so we started writing songs um in akron and at this point we were actually working at dan dan had just built a studio we were working at his studio at his house in akron a lot he had a one inch eight track and um, some all tech pres, like two pre's it was like instant vibe you know the stuff we could put down on that setup um, and we were sending stuff to to, to to Brian and then he would take it in the studio here and then Ike would come in and they would you know Holy get some vocals cow. but it took forever like we were we had like we had like nine ten songs or something that, that it written sent to him and After like three months, we'd only had, you know, maybe two of the songs sent back, maybe three. And so at one point, this was like spring of 2007, I actually flew out here to LA um, for like a little trip. But I called Brian and I asked him if he would meet with me. And we got a drink at the Standard Hotel. And without asking Dan, I was just like, hey, you know, these songs that we're writing, can we just take those and turn them into like a Black Keys record? Because we... We Dan and I gotta work. We can't sit around and wait for this thing. He understood exactly what, what was going on, you know. Like we had to make some money. And the only way to do that is a tour. We had to have a record. We can't wait for Ike to like slowly take his time. Unfortunately he ended up dying later that year, but um Wow. So the record never got finished. Holy cow. But Brian's like, Yeah, okay. This is and this is like right at Brian's right when crazy had come out like a couple months earlier. Mm-hmm so um he's busy as hell too he's busy as hell but he's you know you know he's into us and and we're into him and he wants to work with us so we selected this studio in ohio because dan was about to have his first kid right around the same time that brian was available to record so we couldn't be that far from from akron so we went to paynesville ohio to the studio called Suma, um that was built uh by um, this guy Paul Hamon and his dad Ken, both have passed away. Ken had this company called Cleveland Recording, and they had recorded a bunch of really cool stuff, uh, like Green Tambourine and tons of stuff. And he ended up then building this place, Suma, in the '70s, um, early '70s, and he and he tracked like, play that funky music, white guy, white boy, and uh. <laughs> And then all the grand funk stuff. And Whoa. And then all the Perry Ubu stuff. Holy cow. So this is cool. It was like this, it was the country house of the guy that invented baby formula. No He way. turned into a studio. So that was our first venture into a real studio It was this completely bespoke studio built in 1970. This was 2007. So it was covered in dust. It was not well-maintained. Everything seemed to sort of work, but it was really funky and it was really cool and you know they had great stuff they had like it's the first time we saw u47s and this completely handmade desk with really crazy eq and everything sounded really good you know and so it was the first time we went to a studio where we weren't touching compressors or pres or eqs and we had learned enough to like ask paul who was engineering uh and this guy kenny who was engineering. We were able to, you know, express, like, you know, we want this to be a little bigger, this more bottom. Um, So it took us that long to go into the real studio. And then after that, yeah, it became, it became, we became aware of, like, for our own studio needs, like, what we would benefit by having Uh that we didn't have currently, like, good mics and stuff. But since then, you know, we went and we we recorded after that, like, this record with... um, called Brothers. And so we, we, we'd worked at uh, this cool local legendary studio. And so the next place we wanted to go, we wanted to go to Memphis to make our next record, which turned into the record Brothers. Um, and the engineer we enlisted for that was this guy, Mark Neal. Love um, him, know him. Yeah, of course, Mark, legend. Uh, we wanted to go to um, Sam Phillips Recording Studio. You know, Mark had his reasons why he didn't want us to go there. We really wanted to go to Memphis because it's such a fun city. We love Memphis. And the idea of, like, spending a couple weeks there making a record sounded amazing. But Mark said, no, but there's this other cool studio that you guys I'm sure have heard of. We can go there. And it was Muscle Shoals. So we went to Muscle Shoals. He Mark drove out from San Diego with, like, drum set and bass and a bunch of stuff a studer um
0: it wasn't the fame recorders it was the other highway it was was jackson highway
1: jackson highway muscle muscle sound studios incredible um but he brought like a lot of gear mics and a little studer suitcase desk uh and we came down with like instruments and stuff from akron and um we met there and we walk in and like it's it has the feel like of that you know you could tell magic was made in there but everything was broken wow like the desk wasn't working at the time they had an mci it was just a piece of shit
0: um you guys kind of resurrected that place i mean there was a documentary later on but
1: i mean when you there's you, a documentary i don't think they mention us in it but yeah nothing that to my knowledge had really been done there that had been successful uh-huh in year in like decades Yep. and so we went in there and it was like Kind of felt abandoned in a way. You know, this guy owned it. He was going to try to turn it into a museum. And uh, Mark did set up his stuff in the control room. We we tracked everything, monitoring, monitoring everything in mono. But anyway, we made this record there over 10 days, whatever, but, but using Radar and the Studer tape deck, Studer mixing desk and very minimal kind of setup. No song that we recorded there had more than 13 tracks holy cow yeah because we could only monitor 12 at a time
0: yeah well is you and dan's kind of concept philosophy always been to go in the studio and start writing then or do you bring in demos obviously you
1: had the ike stuff to go into the ohio studio but like yeah i mean with uh with our second record thick freakness um we had been writing we had been rehearsing for uh the, the only time in our band history that we ever did that was like the summer of 2002 We after our first tour, we had quit our jobs, and when we didn't have gigs, we had nothing to do, so we would write songs, um, and record them on our four track, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we ended up, but for that record, when it it came time to record it, which we did on our like that Tascam three eighty eight, we had written all the material, so we just recorded it in one afternoon, Um, and then with with uh, with the record that became. um, Man, I'm dr- I'm forgetting the name of the record. <laughs> attack and release. Yeah, we have a lot of records. The um, attack and release the one that that was one that was written for Ike. At least at least seven of the what, eleven or twelve songs were were written beforehand. Gotcha. Um, but most of the time, I mean, the way that Dan likes to work is to go into the studio and just create. Uh, it, it, if somebody has a chord progression or like a beat or something that's usually the spark you know wow. but like it's not like the fact the times that we've gone in and there's been a fully formed song there's been like one time that's happened uh that's incredible and the first records are a few dan would bring in some stuff that yeah um that's
0: such a testament to your relationship together also that you can go in and create magic and even bill said that to me he's like they wrote a song a day for 14 days every day
1: when you're at a key club but yeah from- i mean we're making this new record now and we've been dan i've been at, we've been getting along better now than we ever have before like um not just musically but just like personally and we have a lot of fun so we've been working a ton and in the studio and uh you know we started the record just like we had some free time last like april a year ago like Right before our, our most recent record came out, we had some free time to so be we in the studio and we've been going in and out and we have time. We've we've we are we, we clock Yeah. We've got like fifty songs that we've started and we've got it pared down to like twenty five. But I mean if we if we were in the studio, I think we could average a song done every two days if we wanted to. Jesus. It's like print style. I mean the, th- the thing is is that the problem is that we'll know like it takes you a day to know if the song's good or not. So you spend a whole day doing something and then for us, like, it's about sixty percent of the time we'll continue working on it.
0: Sometimes uh, you just scrap it?
1: Oh yeah. We have like seventy songs that we've scrapped in our career. One of them but some of them are like these Enigma songs. Like when we end up doing our record that we did here, there was a song we spent a lot of time on. Kept bringing it up, getting stuck on the vocal melody, stuck on like some nuanced thing. And like when that starts happening, Dan and I know instinctually now, like just put it away. It's like just leave it alone. But you know, that song never came out. And for the whole time we were working on it, like this is going to be the single, clearly. And then it probably still would have been like the best song on the record, but we just we couldn't. If it doesn't happen quick for Dan and I, Typically, it's just not worth finishing.
0: Even when it does come quick, do you second guess it after? You know, when you're writing on the spot, like what you're feeling that day is so, you know, influential of what happens in the studio. Do you do th- three days later when you hear a rough mix, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, what what were what, what we doing? And does that also happen a lot, or is there a sense of like, no?
1: You know, I mean, I look at things always when I'm working on it. Like, I'll know. Dan and I both have very similar opinions. And when we differ, like I, we both can see typically what the other person's struggling with. Um, so we always kind of find ourselves on that same page. Yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, I, I will sometimes like hear something, you know, after we've done it and one of us will be like, oh wait, this this isn't right, let's try it this way. But it's like more of a problem-solving thing than like, a, just, and actually, you know, it's like an important thing that like, I learned from Brian, you know, because it's like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of learning to make music. Now I come from the place where, you know, it's like, it's, it's about the concept. Like it's about like what the songs are supposed to feel like, what the vibe is. I'm I'm not like a, a super uh, technical musician, you know, sometimes we need people like that to come in to help us execute shit. But it's For me, it's more like, it's different, you know? So um sometimes if I disagree with like the concept or direction, I used to, like if someone was bringing something, I'd be like, I don't know about that. Early on into the stage of creating something. And uh, I, I don't do that anymore because uh Brian taught me to just, you know, that you can't like, you can't shoot down an idea until it's been properly executed by the person who's, presenting it you know and if if they're not ready to let it go like just let them finish because I've seen it happen where something where I was like this isn't gonna work like another hour later it's like kind of amazing you know and so Brian at one point pulled me out of uh, the studio in Summa and he's like and at this point we were you know we just had met each other like a few months earlier but we were I think we already had kind of like a a dynamic like he like older brother younger brother dynamic and he was like hey Pat like you gotta do me a favor I was like what's that like just like sometimes just shut the fuck up <laughs> just let me finish something and then just, just shut the fuck up <laughs> and then you can say something and I was like oh yeah no problem and then I think that's when we were we were writing the song Strange Times which became the single
0: very cool when well, you're down at Muscle Shoals Mark Neal he chose that place. You guys are writing in the room. Brothers
1: is completed. It literally blows up. Well, Brothers wasn't just done there. But where else did you go? Brothers is a complicated record because we we had we'd done some in Akron, a dance studio on that 8-track setup with the Altex that Mark Neal had actually designed that studio. Then we did some in Muscle Shoals. We had done some a year earlier in San Diego at Mark Neal's home studio. And then after we'd done that stuff, we were waiting on mixes to come back from Mark. And when they came in from Mark, they were cool, but they're really, to our ears, very hi-fi sounding. Um, Which isn't a bad thing, but I wanted a crunch. I wanted like, I wanted grit. Man. And so we took the masters and we sent them to Chad Blake. Yes. Love and it. just told Chad to go, go wild on him and like the minute we got songs back it was like early november and it was clear he understood what we needed
0: how did you get in touch with chad blake because he's a big sunset sound sound factory guy that started
1: chad it's weird it's just like you know it's just it's all it's all very connected like yeah music is very strange or a lot world is very strange it's like one of the records i grew up like listening to a lot is a record that my uncle ralph played on um and Dan's cousin uh, Robert Quine played on. It's it a Tom Waits record called Rain Dogs. It's a like very unusual that we both have relatives that played on this record that we both were very influenced by. Incredible. And Chad, of course, mixed like Mule Variations, and so Dan was really into Mule Variations. And Ralph, my uncle Ralph's also on that record, but um, you know, Chad was kind of a household name to us but I didn't I didn't even understand the concept that you could send mixes send masters to someone else to mix until like right around that time I didn't know that was like a a thing so Dan was the one who was like we should send uh we made this hip-hop record like six months earlier called Black Rock and with Joel Hamilton at Studio G in New York and one of the songs Dan's like we should send this to Chad Blake I was like yeah so that mix was so good like Joel's mixes were great, but they're a little bit more hard edged and like the Chad stuff is a little bit just funkier. Yeah.
0: So, it's kind of like a hip hop bottom end kind of.
1: So yeah, we sent it to Chad and like instantly, you know, came back and it was right. But the thing is I I recognized after we got all the mixes back, like well, I didn't recognize, but I thought like, I thought like, Hey, there, we might not have a single, the record's not coming out for months and months. Why don't we go in the studio try to write a song it's like a little bit more i don't want to say commercial i don't want to say poppy but just like more direct yeah direct song like we never tried to do that um so we i we had done that brother's record we produced it ourselves but except for tighten up which we called brian asked him if he wanted to work on a song so we went to the bunker in new york city in over two days, wrote that song, Tighten Up. Whoa. And um, when we first finished it, we hated it. <laughs> like, we just, it didn't match the vibe. Because in our mind, we made this Muscle Shoals thing. It was like this kind of deep, like, soul funk kind of swampy thing or something. And that song just didn't sit in the mix at the time. So we sent it to Chad, of course, to mix. And then just forgot about it. And then... um when we're getting the sequence together to go put turn the record in, like a couple, like in February, my friend, uh, our friend Leon Michaels uh, was over at my apartment in New York. And I played him what, the whole the whole record as it was without tightening up. He's like, you got anything else? I was like, yeah, we have this other song. And he basically, he's like, you guys are complete fucking idiots if you don't put that song on the record. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. There's already like 14 songs. Let's just let's put the 15th song on there. So I called Dan and he's like, Yeah, put it on. I don't care. And that's the song that broke us. Globally. Yeah. Sick. But I mean, the, the irony is that the song that we did in Muscle Shoals uh, on our own, Howlin' For You, has like in the long term, like synced more, streamed more. And I think maybe more popular song. That's funny.
0: You know, this studio is known for like Doors, Van Halen, Janis Joplin, Beach Boys, Zeppelin, all these great records. But one of the songs that is m- the most successful here is the Turtles, Happy Together, mm. because of The Sinks. And but uh, I, I, everybody I would know that song. But you would think that, you know, like Light My Fire or something. But it really is happy together.
1: Well, I love the song. I love the Turtles. And I'm Mark always. Volman is a legend. He lives in Nashville. I run into him at Whole Foods occasionally. <laughs> I mean, but he's also saying backgrounds on Electric Warrior, you know, and the flow and Eddie stuff's incredible. That year of music to me, like 73, 74, like just sonically, uh, it's just so incredible. Like 72, like Roxy Music's first record, you're getting into like the twelve. 24 tracks probably definitely 16 tracks but like separation but everything's still like tracked in a real funky way and there's a lot of distortion but you could a lot of fidelity it's a weird meeting you know but when i think of that era i think of the flow eddie stuff a lot so
0: brothers is a hit you followed up with el camino a a giant hit you guys are just touring
1: nonstop all over the place Are, are you just beat mentally are i think still like thused? i think i mean like at the time it was really hard to appreciate i mean it was it was it was like incredible to like have worked for a decade which at the time felt like a long long time because we were in our early 30s uh and now we're in our early 40s but at the time it felt like we'd worked a long time and then all the stuff was happening and so we had to, we said yes to everything and which we should have but I think there's a lot of internal pressure. We weren't getting good guidance. Cause there's, I mean, there's not many people that experience that, you know, like going from in like a, you know, going from that, 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 that period of time where like, you maybe think like when you turn 30, you don't think that you're like, you know, you feel a lot older than you are, but like to then like, Bust onto like Madison Square Garden stage and that kind of stuff. Like, it's kind of, kind of spun, spins you out. I mean, like, and I I can only imagine what happens if you go like from like your first record that happening. But you know, like the faster you rise, the faster you fall. I think you just, the pressure is just too great. Yeah. But I think um, we were touring way too much. Uh, you know, someone had told us like you've got a five year window to like make all the money you can make, like then you won't be cool anymore. That was like that's the thought process that we had was, like, oh shit, like it started when did the clock start? Like I, I took that as like absolute truth when someone said that to me and it's not the truth. Um and so I think we ended up having this thing, I mean where like after Turn Blue came out after a year of touring we basically like just both of us were just fried and like we played outside lands in 2015 and then we did not play another show until 2019 ooh i don't know that 4 year break 4 year break which you know it's like seems like a long time but a lot of bands do it all the time like i don't know bigger bands like They've been around for a while. You two, or whoever. I think Arcade Fire takes big breaks like that sometimes, but uh, our break wasn't like planned. It was just like we were fried. We couldn't even approach it. We couldn't even like think about how to do it.
0: Are you both married with kids then? too at that point, or?
1: Yeah, our our personal lives are volatile. Yeah, yeah. but um, you so, know, but you know, I think like the uh, what ended up happening eventually was like. We got back in the studio in 2018, and then like, I think that we kind of realized that we still had a lot of good work that we could be making, and like, it felt like something had shifted back. Where like, I felt like we kind of felt like in a good, the best possible way. It's like, oh yeah, we like still have like underdog status, or like, you know, like we we have to make good work still. And so, like that's what's that's the head spot that's the headspace we're in right now. It's like we have to make our best work for it to be worthwhile.
0: And that four year gap, were you personally itching to get stuff recorded or creatively needed to? Were you we playing drums at all?
1: We both were working. Yeah, I was producing stuff. Dan was producing a ton of stuff. We just, you know, he 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 had this band, the Arcs. He made a solo record. He produced. He started his label, Easy Eye. I started putting out. Yeah. A lot of stuff on that. I with with I don't even know what I worked on. I worked on a few records, uh one obviously one with Michelle, two with Michelle. Um, Branch, my wife. Mhm. Um, you know, a handful of records, but I was I was at the I mean the the I was I was wanting to the keys I wanted to do the key stuff, but only if it was fun. And I think that was the same thing with Dan. So we just had to kind of we made some changes. we changed management, we got a new agent um and we just started mixing things up but but also we we for the first time like we made this record, let's rock just the two of us um with engineers, and uh for the next record like ra- the pandemic happened, it was like, oh, it's okay. so like we were like just about to get things rolling and then that happened. And then it was actually kind of end up, everything kind of, you know, happens for a reason. But for us, after like we, we took the year off or we didn't work and then we came back in 2021 to make our album. And I think after that pandemic, we were like really, 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 were appreciating the time we got to spend together. You know, like we were really having fun, joking around and like, Experimenting again more in the studio than we had in the last album, and we kind of opened up a little bit of collaboration uh, lyrically. And then, so for this record we're doing now, we're just, it's a, it's a, it's an extension of that. But we've just gone like deeper into our rolodex, and we've been calling like we've been working with Beck, we've been working with Noel Gallagher, we're here with Dan the Automator. You know, we've been we've been pushing ourselves and our friends to make good work love that why when you're a key club 2013
0: starting work on um turn blue why wasn't danger mouse out there for the beginning of that or would he kind of always just pop in on certain tracks and
1: i mean i think that was like that's the thing about being in a band you know it's like just you've got to you've got to be good at compromising you know i i wanted to i wanted to make that next record with 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 brian but um Dan wanted to start without him. And uh we ended up coming back to work with Brian. But I think we just want to see what we could do without him because we you know and I think it would have been it would have been cool, but Dan had literally just separated from his wife like a week earlier. And I think, you know, you have he they have like, they had a a, a young daughter's way four at the time. You know, so just very heavy. Uh, So he's um, looking for no stress, just chilling, writing music. We just, like, sometimes that type of work, and it's like, we made brothers when it was under the same type of conditions, only with me, and I didn't have a kid, and it was very productive. Yeah. Uh, But it's like, once you have kids, it becomes much different. You, I think it's maybe way harder to work through a stressful situation away from your family, you know. Obviously, if you have children, I know that now. I didn't know. That's part of the problem with Dan and I, and me understanding what he needed. And I yeah, I didn't have kids until, uh, until 2018. Dan had a kid in, 20, in 2007, his first kid was born.
0: After 11 records and you've been playing music with Dan since junior high, high school? 90, 97, 90, 97, 98. Yeah. What's something about Dan Auerbach that makes you a a better musician
1: or even a better person well i mean dan is a better musician than i am you know that goes without saying um he always has been and that's like the thing is that you know he's appreciated i guess what i can bring um in a way that at times like i couldn't even appreciate you know um Dan's, a, he's a, he he knows how to curate what he wants around him, and he's, you know, there's a lot of good things, a lot of great things about Dan. Um, but I think, you know, we, we make really good music together. I think we both have a, a lot of, uh, we both have a strong kind of Midwest work ethic. You know, when we started the band, we both were like, when we started it, we were a three piece, but the third guy, didn't want to come to practice and it became clear that like this was going to be a problem. Like Dan and I were both very committed to it and willing to like sleep in the van, make no money, drive around the country with no guaranteed money. How many other people are going to be willing to do that? And so we didn't even fuck around trying to find a third person. Um, But we were willing to do all that. And uh, we also, you know, we were willing to like, go through those metamorphosis they have to like are we a two-piece blues rock band or are we like one of the bigger alternative rock bands on the planet you know it's like and how do you do how do you go there like and like how do you ask for the right help how do you make those transitions without like compromising like the you know your your artistic integrity you know like how do you know that fine line of like, am I doing something just because it's cool? Am I doing something because, and new just because it's new? Or am I doing something because this is what I'm into? And we've always kind of been able to walk that line together, you know?
0: I'm from Chicago. Uh, my dad even worked with Buddy
1: Guy. Cool.
0: I was so influenced by the blues growing up. Were you and Dan the same way? Were you listening
1: to Taj Mahal, Delta Blues Records, uh, Body Dan- Waters? Dan. Grew up listening to blues music, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, you were into like, all Hound, kinds dog, of, Hound dog Taylor was yeah, big yeah. for him. Um, I was into. I mean, my dad really loved music. My dad introduced me to like Beefheart. You know, sick. Bloods Up on Beatles, Stones, which is you know psychedelic blues has
0: a lot of blues. Yeah, I was, Taj Mahal played on. Saturday. I never.
1: I heard like Captain Beefheart. Um I heard Tom Waits, then Captain Beefheart, then Helen Wolf. Wow, okay. So I was going backwards. Yeah. Uh and Dan went the opposite way. Yeah, it was That's cool. Helen yeah. Wolf, Captain Beefheart, Tom Waits. I mean, I think that's the you know, you start to tell a lot by someone. Like that's why I, for a long time like I I when I thought of the blues, I thought of like the worst possible music of all time like 80s kind of gated reverb like fog machine duster jacket leather jacket i mean i just but you know now i mean i actually listen i probably i I bet you if you listen like i probably listen to more 50s electric blues currently than dan does probably yeah um which i which would not have been the case prior to like a year ago
0: well that party you had saturday night which was the coolest fucking thing ever um you're picking out all the 45s you're spinning all night. I mean, that was an incredible set
1: list you guys are going through. Yeah, we were playing some deep 45s. Dan and I have gotten into this thing we do, call it, we call them record hangs, where we just bring our 45s and spin with friends. Um, which sounds like a pretty generic idea, but like I've only ever seen it done a few times. There's this place called, a uh, um, man, I forget what they called it. It was a wednesday night club in london and it was like 20 years ago you go to the basement of this house in soho and this guy would have a mono speaker and just play like 45s and like that's really insane but like that that was like the only other time i've really seen heavily curated people just playing 45s exclusively which is the key like you can't bring the lps out
0: i thought that was super unique and cool and also, the crowd was going crazy cool spot there with Tommy and no vacancy or I'm sorry Mark and no vacancy Yeah, um, but it was a good time I mean and also I'm like Spider-Man's there and a million other cool people yeah do you enjoy the Black Keys now more or when you were touring around and with a van with no guarantees and sleeping on you know two hours each night mm-hmm. was that the best part of this or is it now at the height of sync success and
1: giant records and everybody knowing who you are I mean, um, I've always enjoyed doing it. It's most enjoyable when Dan and I are getting along well. You know? Uh, and for a long time, like, it just took us a while to figure out what that is. And, it's like for, and what that is is like him not feeling like he has to do stuff. Like The whole point of being in advance, like you don't want to feel like you have to go to work. And so it's like we've just been trying to make it fun the record hangs are an extension of that working a lot and pushing ourselves is an extension of that yeah um I'm enjoying the band now more than I ever have but I've always enjoyed it there's been a few times when it was harder you know um but the
0: hunger's there though the drive I mean you know just living breathing sleeping everything music all the time like there's a chase that you guys have when you're a young band
1: you still have a lot of that in you yeah, I think that, like, uh, this is weird kind of, um, thing that happens when you reach, like, when you reach these certain thresholds, like, points in your life, like, right bet- right before we turned, like, 30, felt like we it was, like, make it or break it, like, have to, like, put it on the line. That was brothers, you know? And then, um, you know, we pushed it right into El Camino. But for me, like the like the hardest period of time is always that period of time. Like, like it's like the tw- like when you're twenty seven, twenty eight, right before you get to those moments. Like, for me, also like thirty eight was was very rough. Like realizing that you're like about to turn forty. But then once you get across the, that finish line, and you realize or what, that spot, you're like, okay, wait, I'm still like I've got a lot to left to prove. And I think for me, like. I'm like, you know, from from Cleveland, from Akron, like, I always say this, but it's true. It's like, it's really hard to be, to win. We grew up like watching all of our sports teams lose. Our town's like still crumbling. It's like, you're not born to like win. So when you do win, it's like, you have like this almost survivor's guilt or something. And I think like, we're kind of that thing where it's like, we're like some sort of like, um, like, Ghostbusters 2 demon where it's like we feed off of like negative energy makes us stronger river like if we get bad reviews like we just like get <laughs> the more bad reviews we get like the stronger we get
0: yeah I totally relate I mean I'm from Indiana Chicagoland area I think also the seasons growing up to really define the character of who you become but I'm 39 I'm, right I'm now with that. too and I'm scared shitless in two months that I'm going to be 40 years old I don't even know why I've never cared about my age, but now I
1: yeah, do. But that's meaningless. But the thing is, the seasons are, I, and I do have, I do, I do have some theories about records being seasonal, like springtime for me. There's certain records that are very springtime, and one of them was one that was made here, uh, and it's safe as milk, springtime record for me. Yes. I just equate it to that things coming back to life. I the first time I heard it, uh, my dad got it for me. Um, for my birthday when I was eighteen, maybe. Whoa. Uh, Captain Beefheart Safe as Milk, nineteen sixty-seven, I believe. Yeah, it had just been reissued on CD when my dad got it for me. And I at the time was I was delivering pizzas. That was my job. And I would put the record in and just chain smoke cigs and listen to it. And it was kind of like um what kind of car were you driving? Uh, Ford Escort Wagon. I was mowing lawns during the day and then delivering pizzas at night. So the pizzas probably smelled like gasoline. <laughs> but um, it was around, that's right, right around the time that Dan and I, we had jammed a little bit in high school, but like it was right around the time that we started jamming again. We, had, like, we jammed in high school, then we jammed around this time, like 98, 99, and then we didn't play together again until 2001 when we ended up ultimately starting the band. But... It was that period of time like 98 99 where I was like I'm really into this album he was like the only other person I knew other than my dad and my uncle who who liked that record
0: yeah um which was recorded in this room and RCA a block down the street and strictly personal a sophomore record done in this room all but what what is it about those recordings that are special to you or the songwriting or even you know beef heart as a person his vocal range
1: um i like you know, the band john I, french on the drums i like the band i like, I like the sense of humor i like the, the everything about it i yeah. just thought it was re- i thought it was really cool and obviously it's technical but um it comes across like rock, rock and roll chaos even though it's, it's i think pretty organized you know but um the energy is right you know ry Cooder's guitar playing and the drumming the whole thing i mean it was right after that I found Spotlight Kid on vinyl in, in a record store in Akron, um, which is like the kind of the crazy thing about Akron is that there was this like crazy economy there that ended in the late seventies. But it, had, it means that all the teenagers, I guess, the parents had some money to give them allowances or they had jobs, something. So you, all these cool things that were happening in the late sixties, seventies like you could find all the records everywhere for nothing I was like find Stooges records for cheap and we all had crazy record collections uh when we were in our late teens because they were like a buck each I bought Spotlight Kid for like a dollar and I remember taking it home and um first time hearing it hearing like the marimba and just like the whole vibe I was like oh my god like I'm hearing Rain Dogs, I'm hearing Tom Waits. You know, I hear where, where the influence is. And my uncle Ralph, like, grew up listening to those things, so like he was a huge influence on me. He would expose me to that kind of stuff, like records like Can by Can. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: who was a drummer back then when you were growing up? I mean
1: that i was into yeah it was russell simmons from the blues explosion john spencer blues explosion that was a band like that's how i mean you know i was into like you know i mean the first time i had like my musical like awakening thing where i was like maybe i'm really into this it all kind of came because my friend steve uh i spent the night at his house and this is we were in sixth grade and um He had, in his room, he had a red quartz electric guitar. And i was like, what? You can just, like, have an electric guitar in your room? That's amazing. He's like, yeah, dude. He plugged it in, like, played something. I was like, what the? That's insane. And I, and and then I went to my dad, like, the next day, like, Steve has an electric guitar. Like, I want to get one for Christmas. I said, I want. And my dad's like, okay, if you do your chores and stuff, maybe you'll get one. And then he, he went to the library and he came back and he gave me, like, Jimi Hendrix smash hits and Led Zeppelin, um, too. And wow. both those records, but especially hearing, like, whole lot of love, like, just being like, that's electric guitar, that's what it can do. Kind of got the, the bug. And then, like, weeks later, my brother comes home, my older brother comes home with Nirvana's Nevermind. And like, so I'm just like, and then I get an electric guitar. I'm just like boom, perfect storm, like right at that age. So then I got way into like all the bands that were associated with Nirvana, and things like that. Because you started that. on guitar first, didn't you? Yeah, and I I I did not seek. I've never taken. I've never taken a drum lesson. I did not seek out to be a drummer. And to be completely honest, like I bought a drum set when I was 15. I was washing dishes. I, I wanted to get all the. I wanted to have all the gear in my dad's basement. So I could have a band. That's all I wanted to do, be in a band. I wanted to play guitar, but my friends couldn't drive. So I was like, I'll get the drum set. I'll get a bass. I'll get a four track, a nicer four track, some microphones. So I worked. And my mom made me like save half my money. And then the other half, I could do anything I wanted with. So I bought this drum set. I bought all the stuff. And like you know, most of the time, we would just my friends and I would come over. We'd just jam, make tapes on my four track. And Um, but when Dan would come over, like the first time he came over, like way better guitar player than me. So I just would like play a surf beat, what I thought was surf beat. And honestly, I didn't even really comprehend the drums were supposed to be played in like a consistent time pattern, honest to God, (laughs) until I was working with Danger Mouse, 27. We'd already made, um, four albums. I just did not play drums like that i played drums with dan like we would go into this thing and it would be this rolling kind of thing groove so like the choruses would speed up and whatever not to me well nothing was speeding up or slowing down to me it just felt like music just felt like this thing and then we never worked on the grid or anything like that till Around, we did a couple songs on the grid with danger mouse well, and you, he told me we were going to do that he's like you should practice playing to a drum machine and it was like really hard for me now like i'm somewhat sensitive to it i obviously like i think better but at the same time my brothers yeah like i we there's no clicks there's no reference to time i we, we just all feel like wow you know, um, but yeah, like I said, I, like, I did not, I've, I, I like the energy that someone like Russell Simmons from Blues Explosion was like emitting from stage was the thing that was like powerful to me. It just be like, uh, clearly he's a great drummer, inventive and, and and really tight, but like, it's just more the power. Like, and so I would just hit the drums really hard.
0: I love that. Prince who recorded a lot of stuff for, I mean, 10 years of work in the room you're in right now, almost always never to a click. I mean, listen to the cross and sign of the times, that thing is up and down and there's just, it's almost like your heartbeat, you know, when you get excited about something,
1: you know, your heartbeat's faster. That's the problem with a lot of music is, it's like how, you know, when the Beatles engineers were like, let's save some time. So these guys don't have to like double all their vocals. So this' create the automatic vocal doubler for them to know that there's like this variance that has to exist, this modulation of pitch that has to be there it has to be flawed for it to sound good, yeah, I mean that's like the thing that needs to happen you need like if t- if you could put that on a whole mix, just slight milliseconds like the automatic live band tracker like it would liven up music a lot like sometimes it feels so stiff. You know, and like, if you're on certain substances, it's like <laughs> shocking how stiff shit feels. And it's just like, man, that's the fucking problem. You know,
0: they're on those beefheart records, though. If there was a, you know, there's a lot of kids that come in here every day, 20 years old, got money from a, a label or they saved up their own money to record, yeah. and they'll come in here and they don't even know who the doors are. They're 19, 20 years old. If you were gonna name one song to turn a 15-year-old kid onto Captain B Fire, which, what song would it be? Electricity?
1: Mm. It's a hard question, but... Uh, Just put on... Uh, if they're like a so- singer-songwriter, I'd play them like, her eyes are a blue million miles, maybe, or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, I think, like, if you want to talk about groove, it's like, sure enough, yes, I do. That's rock and roll. And, well, the Dropout Boogie,
0: yeah. which is the name of one of your albums, the Black yeah. Keys Records, is obviously there's a, ty- a track by Captain B-Fire called yeah. Dropout Boogie. Yeah. Is that a reference to that, I imagine? It's a reference to that. Yeah. How many people pick up on that?
1: Mm, the people who know, know. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know.
0: Why? What was the concept behind that, briefly?
1: Calling a record Dropout Boogie? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think. It's cool. During this time post COVID, when we were making a like our newest record, dropout boogie, uh, like I said, I'd spent like a year personally like isolated with like a teenage stepdaughter, my wife, her sister, and a kid. I was around no, very few uh, dudes, my age for like a year. So we went in the studio, just was like Dan and I ended up like really bonding by 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 making music and joking around, reminiscing about high school and you know, also I think really feeling like some um appreciation of all stuff that we have have going for us and accomplished and stuff. And I think one of the things that we kept talking about was just like how the best thing we ever did was drop out of college. Mm-hmm. And like uh you know, we were listening to that song, just like, if we hadn't dropped out of college, we wouldn't be successful. Yeah. <laughs> that realization I think was was really funny to us for people
0: or for artists starting out what's what do you attribute to the black Key success uh the most i mean I see, hard-working honestly, band just going around nonstop or is it honestly
1: honestly, I think that is part of it is that if we had college degrees, if we had been, if we had a backup plan, if we had plan B, when we hit certain parts where things got hard or opportunities arose in those areas, like who knows, man, what would happen. But I think knowing that like there's no other option and this is what we want to do and and, and then realizing that like, it makes you commit to being a musician. It makes you understand what that is. And you know Dan's always called them lifers, you know, that person's a lifer, you know, like they're not here just to see what they can get going. If they can't, they're out, they're there, you know? And like, so I think that's it, you know? Yeah. And I also, I think, I think the dynamic between Dan and I, like, you know, he has a younger brother, I'm the middle child. Those 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 things are kind of important. Like Dan's like the de facto leader of the band, but at the same time, like when it comes to certain decisions, like I I'm better at that, and like I can navigate like a middle child. So you know, there's all these all these things, man. So yeah, it like it, when I think about the you know the likelihood of like us growing up, literally is like. My house, then Dan's house was like one, two, three, over and across the street and around the block. It was like, That's we grew great. up like 500 feet from each other. Um, the odds of us just figuring it all out. And the weird thing is like when we first, our, our brothers were the ones that kind of connected us. We had known each other. We had, you know, traded baseball cards and played like wiffle ball and stuff in the neighborhood, um, obviously growing up. But when our brothers were like hey like pat dan's playing music and vice versa like dan was kind of a hippie soccer player with long hair when i around this time and uh he just started playing guitar and um i was like what are you listening to and um he's like i've been listening to a lot of like mississippi fred mcdowell and rl burnside this is, and i was like rl burnside I was like I I had just bought an Arl Burnside CD because he had made a record with the Blues Explosion. So like I came with, attack, through this stuff all through indie rock, and he came through it all through like blues, and I was like, that's weird. That yeah. Like you don't have any of these records that I have, and I don't have any of these records that you have, but we have this one piece. And then we ended up being signed to that label, you know, Fat Possum that released both those records. So,
0: do you believe in God? Do you think that's, I mean, that's, a lot of things are so serendipitous or meant to be and just organically come together and happen in the weirdest, strangest ways. Do you attribute that to the universe or is that well, I, 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 some superpower? I, I, I don't want to get too
1: I, crazy, but it is like, just I, I, meant don't, to be. I, I don't believe or disbelieve in things that you don't know. Yeah. You know, I agree. So, so it's like, do I believe in that there's a God? It's possible. Do I believe that there isn't a God? it's possible but like I think you walk into I think like you know um if someone were to say like this is this is an interesting thing someone said to us someone who's working with us our manager at the time years and years and years ago said we you know we were done with our record contract we were on an indie label. This is back in the time when it was like you put a song in a Nissan commercial and a band like us, you would just get like message boards filled up with your sellout piece of shit. Meanwhile, you're living in like a $100,000 house in Akron, Ohio. Very confused by why people are so fucking mad about that or something. We were 25 when all this shit was going on. And um, I came from that indie rock world where that's like the original getting canceled. It was like you... Try too hard yeah therefore like you care so much you suck you're not supposed to care you're not supposed to want it you're not supposed to want it you know that's the way you're supposed to supposed to be perceived it's like nonchalant like don't really give a fuck it's hard to be that way when you've really been in a van and fucking struggling and like how am I working this hard but not giving a fuck I clearly do give a fuck The manager once said to us you'll never be the kind of band that can sell quarter million albums of any album (gasps) straight up that's a quote to a 25 year old and at the same time keep in mind like no band that i'd listened to with the exception of modest mouse who had just had a platinum record no band that i had listened to really other than beck like a nirvana had ever crossed that threshold like half a million sold it was like the, the bands i was listening to weren't popular and like he could have been right, but at the same time, I was like, I can't like work with someone who's advocating for our career, who thinks that that's real. So like, even though I hadn't really seen it done that much, even though we've never had a song on the radio, like I'd seen it happen at least one other time. So I believed that it was possible to be successful. So like you ask. If you believe in like something, if I've seen it done, it's easy for me to fully accept it, even if it's just one time. You know. But um I like to believe in fate. I like to believe in that stuff. I always think like, um, you know, there's certain things that the human brain just can't like understand, you know. And there's certain things that you just can't reconcile and you know, one of them is infinity, you know. Like, do you believe in infinity? I can't even comprehend infinity, but apparently it exists, right? Yeah. But like these are things that like you'll go fucking crazy thinking about. You know, I choose to think like about things like why does crystal clear Pepsi turn brown after 35 years? Look at eBay and it's really, what's doing that? (laughs) That's the kind of thing, just distract yourself with something that's more fun. Yeah. Heavy shit
0: there are things though i always said this about t-bone t-bone burnett who
1: did tremendous work in this room and things just work for him like yeah because he hires the best musicians possible and (laughs) smokes weed in the control room it's gonna (laughs) fucking work all day dog if you get jim keltner and everybody around get a big bag of weed good (laughs) ideas are gonna happen dude that's a fucking good lesson to learn like honestly it is get the best work with the best and you'll get the best that's lesson number one and that is true that is like you work with you try to like that was something that took us a long time to learn like you try to save money by doing this or doing that like what are you looking for you're looking for an insane drum sound like even if you like kind of mid-fi fucked up records like you're bet you are kind of you got to go to a well-designed studio kind of to get it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that room sounds insane yeah this studio three sounds fucking crazy. Sounds a lot better than my basement.
0: Hell yeah. This studio has been here for 63 years, father son operation. And so to
1: be able the, to. But the coolest thing to learn is like when you come into the sunset, you know, and this is true with the few great studios that still remain. Not so much with Abbey Road because all the gear has been kind of removed. The, you know, it's still incredible, but like it's different. Because you're like looking at an SSL or whatever. It's just not, the vibe is not in the control room. You come here and you know, like the Neve is in Studio 2 has probably been here since at least the, what, like 78 or something, late 70s. The API has been here since the 70s. Yeah, the
0: Domenio API was put in the room you're in in 1976. And Prince worked on that So you
1: see the desks have been here. And so, but what you really see is like, it's actually a minimal amount of outboard gear it's just the best of the best it's like original la2as 1176s and you don't need many of those things to make things sound insane and the microphones kind of are and the room design it's kind of it's the it's all of it you know yes. so it's like you i i have i have a, a vintage api at my house i have a u47 i have you know all this stuff but um the x factor is like and actually, and I actually have an engineer that used to work here that works at my studio. He did, Morgan Stratton, who gets oh, really? insane, insane sounds in my studio. But what you don't have is like, I think the the feeling of being in a room like this, knowing the history, and also the slight pressure of like it costing you, not a ton, but like, you got to stay on your feet. You can't just like, fuck off.
0: Yeah, there's a sense of focus that pressure is good, and being inspired. Um, we take a fan question from the Sunset Sound roundtable and I pick it out and there was one that stuck out to me and it said, Patrick, hmm. do you ever look at the top 10 songs on Billboard and think, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. But <laughs> It's been like
1: that my whole life. Um, you know, but I... It is outrageous. Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like a prick because this is just re- reality, but like if you if you if you take the world and you and you and you and you look at it through like just the bell curve of intelligence half the world is below average you know and average isn't that high mm-hmm. that you, you, you know, so it's like not i mean I, I know i'm not an idiot when it comes to certain things when it comes to music i, I have taste that is very specific and uh you start to get into these things where you can navigate complicated stuff and you realize like i i have probably an average slightly above average intelligence I, i'm like leaning towards like maybe 25 percent 30 percent of that bell curve is smart you know on this thing where they're probably into who knows what they're, probably they're probably into the worst music yeah because they're probably so focused on something way more important like Most people don't, most people like trash, man. Um, And when it comes to certain things, I like trash. Uh, I have low level needs when it comes to like certain things. I like horrible films. I don't like pretentious films. I don't like super pretentious music. I like very specific stuff. I'm always saying like when it comes to alternative rock, which is probably the music that I like the most, like I hate like 90% of it. You know? Like I don't wanna I'm very particular. Like if someone said like, Oh yeah, you like what what are you into? It's like, well I like and like I like uh I like nineties alternative grunge. It was like, well what bands do you like? I was like, Well, I actually hate most of them. You know what I mean? When it comes to like uh sixties psychedelic bands, what bands do you like? Well d I, I don't really like the Grateful Dead that much. I don't like quicksilver messenger. I mean like I fucking like very few amount like a very small amount, you know. Yeah. I mean? I'm I'm like not the guy to be curating what people should listen to, I have very specific tastes um, and you know that stuff that resonates like across a big thing it's cool when you can create that. I think it's really cool when a band can create something like that that gets in that mix, but like it we were always told like don't have a top forty song, don't have a top forty song it'll like it'll ruin your crowds wow. I've seen that I've seen it happen. I don't know. It's it's a complicated thing because if you think about all these like how cool it would be like to be if it was nineteen sixty eight again and like you could be in the doors and your songs were like hitting the top ten and or you could be in the turtles. All those bands had miserable experiences. They all ended up in complete terrible spots. You know what I mean? Disaster, drug overdoses getting ripped off by managers it's like would you rather be in wilco or would you rather have been in the turtles i I think you'd rather have been in wilco i think yeah do you think it's also though that kids
0: teenagers today aren't exposed to a lot of this great music and i mean that's even what i try to do is just expose them to beef hard and um montrose you know rock candy was done in this room i tell everybody that that's one of the coolest drum sounds ever by don
1: landy it's weird how things hit and don't hit you know it's like i don't just like rock and roll i hate so much of it yeah it's like i don't like montrose i don't i don't like van halen i just don't it didn't hit for me it just wasn't there it's like there's i appreciate it you know but it, it was i would never put it on you know um that's the cool thing about being a music fan. It's like, it's like I like this, I don't like this. I I think like I like it when I see my stepdaughter or my son uh have a strong opinion about something. It means that they care. And even if they're listening to something I really don't like, at least they care enough to know. But the only way I can tell is if they if they, if they strongly dislike something and they strongly like something, I'm happy uh to be like just complacent is, is kind of a sad thing, you know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of complacent when it comes to to certain like things. like a bean and cheese burrito. Like, I'm, I'm kind of I don't give a fuck. I don't really care. Like, Paquito Moss, Taco Bell, I don't fucking care. When It comes to like a James Brown track, I, I really do care which song I'm gonna listen to. It's like some I want, some I don't. But I, I play stuff for my for my son, and like I'll play him stuff we're working on, and he'll. He'll be very opinionated. But what's crazy is this like, I, I, when we first did our song Wild Child, he liked it. And then, like, a week later, he did not like it. And then now he asks, if he wants to hear it. You know what I mean? And I was like, it's interesting because, like, I'm, I'm that way a lot. Things like I didn't like, like, the first time I heard My Bloody Valentine, I did not like them. And then the second time I couldn't get it. The third time I couldn't get it. I didn't really understand how to appreciate that group until I was like in my late 20s. Um, but that's the thing about music is that my tastes are always changing, you know what I mean? I could get way into Montrose next year. I don't fucking yeah, know, yeah. you know what I mean? But I, I haven't gone to that thing where I've learned how to appreciate it. Same thing with Van Halen. I just, it's not there, you know? like But the things that I grew up liking, like i play it for someone, like a band like Pavement. If I play it for Dan, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's cool, but please turn it off. Because <laughs> he didn't listen to it, you know? So like that nostalgia thing, feeds really heavy into music you know we were doing this dj record hang thing the other night and one of the groups this group from switzerland was helping this dj and they put on a madonna song and we actually (laughs) had to stop the record player we had to reject the song because it was (laughs) it didn't pass the board's approval but i understood why they played it you know yeah yeah, yeah.
0: um we both have a love of bell and sebastian but what is a cool band that you think people should listen to
1: now that you're either involved with or just a fan of? Oh, yeah, Bill and Sebastian. I haven't listened to them in, in, in I, I mean, I've heard their, their most recent singles actually been really good, but I was way into them in the late 90s. They had that song Seymour Stein, and he just passed away yesterday. Dan actually met him.
0: Really? I didn't know that. Yesterday?
1: Seymour Stein died yesterday, yeah he flew to cleveland to check us out like right when we started and it was mind-blowing to hear him talk because he used to he was a and r for king records way back in the day in cincinnati uh doing a lot of that james brown stuff uh bands that i like now i mean there's just there's a ton there's a ton and i actually think like it's there's no better time to explore like new music i think like that's the thing though,
0: because there's sixty thousand uploads to Spotify every day. So it's like I always want to hear what
1: people have for a suggestion. Or well, the best thing like. you can do is send your friend a song that you like. Exactly. Um, make a playlist, share it. I mean, I think that that goes a long way. It's so easy to do. How, you know how often I get a playlist sent to me? Like once a month. How fucked up is that? I mean, I should be getting multiple a day. And that, the thing is, when you do get a playlist and you like stuff, it just it, it, your algorithm does start like getting crazy. My algorithm right now. Because uh, what I'll do is I'll put in like something like some kind of obscure blues singer, like Ted Taylor or something. Listen to like, a song of his I like, I'll like it, you know, go go deep off this stuff. And like the next week, like the shit that's getting fed to me is just like rarer and weirder and, you know, some stuff's for the better, sometimes for the worse. But like, I think that that's a good thing to do is just like go to like the far left end of your like taste Start liking stuff that's there, and look at the recommended artists. Like you can go deep. You know, I've discovered a lot of bands. There's this band from SF I discovered years ago called Crumb that I really like. I just did a record with this band called Bass Drum of Death. They're on Fat Possum. There's just there's tons of music. You know, there's no shortage of it. And I think like, I guess I went through a period of time where I was like a little bit jaded about certain things, but I'm I'm, I'm not really there anymore. I'm like. I wanna see new bands, I wanna go out. I I realize that like the best songs usually are the simplest songs. Um for me this like being able to sense and taste like that something's authentic is is the key. So it's like uh, you know, we were and it doesn't you know, there's there's it's hard to tell you have to have you got to have your own parameters to be able to judge like what's real to you, you know, like,
0: and for artists, you know, starting off, have a point of view. What is your point of view? Don't worry about your branding or any of this stuff. I want to hear what you think about oh things. My God, How dude, you trust me, we hang
1: hanging out at the Chateau. It's like, and, but the thing, you know, I love that place cause you can just party and whatever, but dude, like the, some of the people that roll through there are just like the most inauthentic pieces of shit, but then right next to them, you get the real deal. But it's in Hollywood, it's amazing because for me, it's just like being a kid from Akron, I can just see it. Like, it's just like that guy's a piece of shit. This dude's (laughs) fucking dope. Like, here's like Norman Reedus, who's cool. And then here's this dude who's like complete (laughs) dumbass. uh, Yeah. But you can see it. It's cool. You should start a playlist of the record hangs. Hell no. No? We've talked about it, but it's like it's one of those things we go back, it goes back to that like old school record store shit. Like, you know, when you would rock in a record store for me, like that, I, those are very fond and memories of like, of discovery of like going to Amoeba the first time when I was 16 or going to the local store in Akron, um, Quonset hut. And, you know, you had, you had like the 21, 22 year old, person working the counter um you having to gain their trust having them be like well you know what do you listen to like i don't know man what like trying to get them to tell you what they're what's what what to listen to because you you couldn't find it in spin magazine you couldn't find it in rolling stone like it would be like all melissa Etheridge reviews and shit and like in (laughs) spin it would be all like you know i don't know man just shit i wasn't interested in but like you you would go and make what what do you like it's like I don't know. Have you heard DJ Shadow? You know, which that record first came out? Like, like you, you, they would start telling you shit. Then you'd have the CD or the record or whatever. And then you know, no one else would know about it. You like get the drop it on them. Yeah. Um, With the record hangs, it's interesting because these songs, most songs we're playing, are like sixty years old, and a lot of them we haven't heard before. It's just, like it's taken us being avid music fans for like thirty years and digging to get them, and and so it's like. We'll we'll share them with our friends, but like I we, some of them we keep deep in our pocket. Yeah, some of them you can't even Shazam. You know, I only but, knew about twenty percent of them. But the thing is, is that in order to get played, they have to be good. It can't just be some rare shit. It has to be. It has to be something. So before we play stuff, usually we sit around, and play it for each other.
0: You know, it's such an iconic movie. I just thought of that touches down on a lot of things we just spoke about high fidelity yeah um which they even mentioned bill and sebastian in that that movie uh, drove me
1: nuts when it came out (laughs) um but it was like it was kind of real there was this place in cleveland called speaking tongues it was like a diy club had live music you know byob when i was going there i was like underage but we'd all be drinking beer not like in high school but yeah 18 19. But, um, yeah, I saw some incredible shit there. And to, to find out, like, at the time, the, the internet existed, but, like, we didn't have the internet. I lived in a house with friends. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah, I remember. Um, Yeah, so we're like, what? And also, we live 45 minutes from Cleveland, so we would call, like, the record store, the Bent cran up in Cleveland, and be like, what's going on in speaking tongues? And depending on the owner John's mood, he'd be like, I don't know. Even though he probably did he just, like... Or he'd be like, oh, actually, you know, like, C and Cake are playing there or something. You, know? wow. I mean, you'd, But most of the time, you'd have to drive up and, like, the door would either be locked or there'd be, like, an incredible band. Um, and it was, like, it was very hard to find music and to find to have the experience. And I think now it's just, like, it's everywhere. Yeah, It's a little taken for granted. But back then, like, especially, in, like, a cultural void like Akron was at the time, like, to be able to just venture out and, like, walk in and see like modest mouse when in, you know, when they were just starting or to see Mooney Suzuki or some band, like you never heard of just playing, doing an incredible show. So inspiring.
0: I grew up like you did too, though. I was 30, 40 minutes outside Chicago and we'd go up to the Metro or the double door. And that's when Wilco and smashing, smashing pumpkins are one of my favorite groups. And uh, there's two kinds of people, people that really love the pumpkins and people that detest them. Mm. Are you a fan of the smashing pumpkins? I mean, I, I don't
1: know how you, you you can't not be a fan of at least eight of their songs. Yeah, I mean, I've met Billy a few times. He can be hard to to be around because he's so forthright and so sure of himself. Uh, yeah. But he's you know he's a Cubs fan, so yep, he's a, he's automatically a good dude. You know
0: that? Yeah, I was. Uh, we were in Blackbird, uh, Carmen and I. Who you met the other night too. Uh, talking with him they were tracking their new record there but um was... i would definitely definitely
1: have two of smashing pumpkins records
0: sure and jimmy chamberlain is fucking unreal but that was such a great time just in my life growing up and simple and really enjoyed things is it but it, you hit it right on the head when you said there's just so much music now it's cheapened it almost or there's so much they were exposed to, and I think it's all just cell phones and social media, wouldn't you agree? I don't know.
1: I mean, back in the I think there was a real void. I mean music was great, but like we're in like the late nineties, I mean it was like um right before the hives uh, the strokes, white stripes, that whole thing popped off in two thousand one. That time period between like nineteen ninety seven to nineteen to two thousand was very rough. Uh, there's but there was a ton of good music made then there was like songs ohio there was uh, dianoga there are always bands from chicago there's like quarter stick cranky records um there's a bunch of noise stuff uh touch and go i mean but, go, but but none right. of it would resonate like in a mainstream way uh you had to go seek it out and i think it's kind of similar now you know a lot of the good stuff you have to go seek it out and I, I think it's just that part of the cycle. I, I do think w- within a year or two, there's going to be a, a need for things to be a little bit more authentic. Yep, uh, and I totally agree. You know, and that's the thing about that's why the Smashing Pumpkins resonate because Bill, you know, Billy Corgan is an authentic person. You know, and but same thing with like Archer c Seeing Cake guys, like these they're enigmas and like there's so much mystique to these people who most of them I still don't even know, like John McIntyre, these guys like in Chicago, who I just like, what's this insane music coming out of this place? Who are they? You couldn't even find a photo of them. Yeah. You know, that. how cool is that? Now you can go like, see like, you can go on my thing, like see me like, like changing my kid's diaper or something. I mean, like <laughs> not much mystique to that.
0: <laughs> are you a Cleveland Indians fan?
1: Guardians right. now, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Guardians. <laughs> major League one of your favorite movies I love major
0: League yeah of course it's tremendous but right.
1: well, you know what that's the kind of thing that's the it's the it's the it's the classic tale of uh it came out in 1989 you know and uh, the team was terrible and um you know within five years that of that the team was incredible and so that's why it, that's the kind of thing that's what happens when you're a Cleveland sports fan is that even though, like, my football team has had, like, t- 33 quarterbacks in the last, like, 24 years, I'm still convinced that they're going to go to the Super Bowl this year. I am Foley. a Chicago Bears
0: fan, so I'm right there with you. Yeah. And, we've and also, I mean. 34 quarterbacks.
1: Look at, look at the Guardians already this year. But they were down last night, like, it was, like, 8 to 5 Mariners, and they've won 12 to 10. How does that even happen? It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I always root for that. That's what, that's what I like is that the, the? it's like I love like the history of the team like the Dodgers or the Yankees or something but how can you really love a team that has $250 million salary cap when your team's got $45 million and competing. Exactly. And the thing is is that it's because the Cleveland farm system is so fucking insane. The pitching uh, especially that problem is those teams like cleveland or the a's or whatever have to go out and find all these guys they never can hold on to them so when i'm watching that like world series after world series it's like there's at least one or two former guardian guys on this team it's
0: like Moneyball. oh it's just
1: bullshit man world isn't fair you know but
0: last question two last questions lebron james fan or no fan
1: yeah, I I, I lo- can't stand him. I, I mean, I love LeBron's basketball playing. I don't like it when someone like you know he made this comment about you know whatever the uh, freedom of speech. Sometimes freedom of speech isn't the best policy or something. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting way thing to say, but exactly. Um, but he does a lot of great things for Akron, and I think he does. He means well. Sure. I know Definitely. he. I know he means well.
0: It's scary though also with the social media how, you know, these voices can reach 200 million people in a day and they don't even know what they're talking about half the time. I don't know what I'm talking about. I just <laughs> talked to you for an hour. You can only reach a million people. Yeah. Uh, well, life's good. You're excited about music. You're at Sunset Sound working with your
1: bandmate of how long now? 25 years. Um, we officially started the band like second week of, right after 9/11, 2001. Wow. Yeah. What a crazy time. We had made this demo right before that. I was supposed to record his blues. He had like a bar band that played blues covers. I was supposed to record them on this digital uh, Korg 12 track I'd just gotten. And um, I told him to come over this one afternoon. I think it was around like September uh, 8th. It's like the Thursday or something before 9 11. He showed up. His other bandmates didn't, and my friend Gabe and I were there. And so Dan's like, "Why don't you play drums?" And then Gabe, "You can play like the organ." So we made this demo. I never, I hadn't played drums in years—two years—and I sat down and just made up some drum parts, recorded it, and then I was mixing it that weekend. Then 9/11 happened, and then um, I gave him the recording. like on the 13th or 14th of September. And a couple of days later, he called me. He's like, I just thought we were having fun. He was like, we should start a band. We should start a band. I, I want to send these to some labels as a demo. So my brother made a um, cover and I was like, well, we should call ourselves the Black Keys. Like, that was like instantly the name of the band because- um, You came up with that. I came up with it, but it was like, we both agreed instantly because it was this weird thing where my dad was a journalist he worked for the akron beacon journal and dan's dad is like an antique stealer who's into outsider art and so dan's father had discovered this like schizophrenic artist in akron who made these outsider kind of insane five foot tall 50 foot long scrolls of just like cross-dressing state patrolmen and caskets that turn into like fuel pumps it was just like this crazy psycho kind of art it was incredible but the dude my uh his name's alfred mcmore he my dad wrote a story about him and he found out because he found out about this guy from chuck dan's dad and this dude would call dan's house in my house like every day five six times a day and leave these psycho messages just like jim chuck Alfred, I need Diet Coke, I need some pipe tobacco, I need some crayons. If you don't bring these to me, he lived at like a halfway house. If you don't bring these to me, you're a D-flat. You're a black key. (laughs) You're a black key. That was his insult because he thought it sounded like so dissonant. Wow. But like that's it. We're the black keys. And Dad's like, done. We had no other, there's no other decision. So I called my brother. Boom, boom, boom. We send it out. Cold. And like we hear back from like three or four labels. This label in Austin, Chicken Ranch. I'm still in touch with the owner of that. Estrus in Bellingham, Washington. The guy says, if you come up here and play a show, I'm happy to come check you out. And then the third was a label here in Burbank called Alive. And he, the guy said, I'll put your record out. Give me 12 more songs, 12 songs, and I'll put your record out. Um, and I'll pay for mastering and I'll give you 50 copies on vinyl and 200 CDs. And that was like our agreement. And based on that, we quit school. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Last question. What if Dan hadn't called that day and you didn't start the Black Keys? Where would Patrick Carney be in 2023? Man, I don't know.
1: Where would you like to be? Um. I honestly can't even think about it, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know.
0: No clue. Um, do you think you'd produce records or be involved in the
1: industry? At well, all? that's what I wanted to do. That's why I had that digital 12 track. Yeah, I wanted to that's what I was go on produce on. records and I wanted to make music. Um, but I, I do think that the beauty with music is collaboration. You know, it's like, it's so 100%. it's so a band is a unique thing. There's so few of them. Like, like it's, it's To have a four piece band is like nearly impossible. You know, and, and Dan, and I kind of realized that like after our first couple months of being in a band, it's just like, but a band, a collabor, a collaboration, like true thing where it's like, oh yeah, he's in a bad mood today. I know to like give the distance, but I still have to get this, like understanding that dynamic. It is like a marriage, you know, it is this thing. And I do think you end up with a greater uh, a thing that's greater than the sums of its parts, you know? And I do think that there is this enigma that's always been attractive to me. I, I've always, like, I've met Dave Grohl and I met Chris Novoselic for the first time with Dave Grohl. And when I saw those two together, like, it was already, like, I'm like, it was different. I was like, it's Nirvana, almost. It's It's different. Yeah. I mean, like I, I've met Robert Plant, but I have not met Robert Plant with Jimmy Page. And I think if I saw those two together, it would melt my brain. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing that's exciting about bands and music. It's like, it's special. And I think it's really special Like when you can go see a band and you know that you're seeing the band, the whole thing. I understand why Led Zeppelin doesn't play shows really anymore, other than yeah. twice, because they understand that. Yep. And so it's like it is. That's it. That's the authentic band. You know.
0: Do you think the Black Keys will go on for another twenty years?
1: I think that as long as we're making music that we think is vital to us, uh, why then not? we will. And as long as we're having fun, I think it's really important that. Like it's important that we both that we don't burn out again, you know. So it's like Dan's gonna make his side projects. He's gonna do his solo stuff. He's gonna do what he needs to do. I'm gonna do what I need to do, and we're gonna keep keep things moving, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't. I would never have guessed, even in 2005. Like once we had, once we'd already been somewhat established, if someone would say, Are "You can be a band. You can be round." you know, talking about your band 18 years from now or whatever, I I would have said, fuck no. There would have been no way.
0: Wow. Would you still be playing music, do you think? If there wasn't the, you know, if Live Records hadn't taken and distributed your first record, would
1: you still be drumming? I I know I would because my friends in Akron are still doing it. Yeah,
0: and you love it that much,
1: right? Oh, yeah. I mean, performing live has never been, like, the thing that, like, I get off on. I mean, I, I do like it now, but, like, creating music It's always been the thing that's the interest to me wow
0: you know we'll end on that note and i'll let you get to doing that today sir i don't want to take up your whole morning but i can't tell you how much i appreciate you sitting down being a part of sunset coming in
1: here it's cool it's always cool to be here it's cool to be asked to do this and um yeah man yes happy to be respect thank you sir all right yeah that was
0: fun